Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. December the 25th, 2011. I hope you're doing magnificently. Merry, 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 merry Christmas to everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful day. And uh, it's a good thing, I think, that Christmas is not eclipsed by philosophy, at least on this particular day, because otherwise we'd be saying, have a merry, merry, and there'd really be no word for it, because uh, philosophy not so friendly to Christ, nor mass. But other than that, you know, it's, uh, people have asked me a lot about, about Santa, uh, at what point I'm going to begin to resemble him, and I think three days no shaving and a similar amount of cheesecake as I had last night, and I think I'm pretty close. But um, what do you tell your children about uh, Santa Claus? Well, of course, you tell your children that he's an acronym, or he's a uh, mixed-up word for Satan, and you must steer clear of his graspy materialism. But, uh, yeah, my daughter sees Santa everywhere, and um, everybody talks to her about Santa. It's kind of obsessive a little, I think, but um, it's a fun story. It's a fun story. Uh, I tell her the story of the fox and the grapes, uh, but without actually, she doesn't actually believe that uh, foxes speak, um, I guess with the exception of Megan, who slurs. But uh, it's a fun story. It's a nice story, and uh, there's nothing wrong with fun and nice and imaginative stories. So that so she's not a big fan, and she tells everybody that quite uh, <laughs> quite explicitly. And um, uh, so yeah, I mean that's that's sort of my my particular approach. Um, it's a story. Yeah, she doesn't think the toys really come to life at night, uh, and uh, although she's watched Toy Story, so it's a it's a fun story. And I hope that uh, I hope that helps <laughs> in terms of your uh, examination of of Christmas. Now we've had. Uh, some callers who want to call in, but the first thing that I wanted to say is just a huge, massive, from the bottom of my soul, heartfelt thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for promoting this show, for supporting this show, for being involved in this show. Almost 13,000 members on the message board. Uh, I think we've coasted well past 35 million downloads uh, of the show. And uh, thank you, everybody, so much for giving me the the privilege and the honor of, you know, representing as best I can um, a wave of philosophy that I think the world has not seen before. Again, largely as a result of the efforts and strength of this community, the honesty and openness of the people who call in, uh, the curiosity, the occasional troll fest that happened. All of these are part of the glorious equation, I think, of helping to spread an actionable, deep and delicious and powerful and scary and wonderful wave of philosophy in the world. So I really can't thank you enough. I I think of this every single day. I think of this every time I sit down to do a show uh, or write an article or have an interview or going to go public speak. I think about, I mean, the trust that everyone has has put in me to, to represent philosophy uh, is humbling. It is truly humbling. And I just, I cannot thank you enough for uh, everything that you've done to be interested in the show. Even if you're just a bandwidth hog listener, it is a still a beautiful thing. And I really want to thank everyone who takes the time to write me every day to talk about how much philosophy has helped their life, uh, how much it has challenged their relationships, challenged their own lives. Uh, and um, I sympathize with the people who are in the throes of crossing the desert to the real and uh, would like to remind everyone to shoot up flares to help guide their way across the desert to the new and steadily growing village of, I believe, the truly rational. So I really want to thank everybody so much for allowing me to do this crazy, wild, exciting, scary gig 
uh, it is a magnificent privilege. And if I didn't mention thank you, thank you. All right, so that's it for me for the intro. Four minutes, look at that. It's staggeringly quick. So, uh, James, do we have a question from the chat room, or do we perhaps have somebody who wants to tickle my eardrums with some philosophy feathers? We do have somebody on the line uh, who is looking to chat, so go ahead. Hello. Hello, Steph. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good myself. I'm not sure if you're getting any feedback. I'm here with my girlfriend, uh, Shiny, and I have you hooked up to the stereo. I just want to verify if there's no echo cancellation problems or anything. That sounds fine to me. Uh, how do I sound to you? You sound very well. I'm amazed at the sound quality here. It's I'm trying a whole new setup, so uh, that's why things are we're starting a little late today. Thanks for your patience. It's are okay. you the UPB uh, couple? Yes, we are the UPB couple. Beautiful. <laughs> Fire um, away. So well, uh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fantastic. Thank you. How about you? Uh, we're doing good ourselves. Uh, Merry Christmas to you, too. Thank you. Well, um, as I'm sure you know, we posted a few questions in the board, which generated lively discussion. At the same time, we posted the same question to Reddit. It also generated a lively discussion. It's uh, hard for us to try and come up to uh, come to terms with uh, what we appear to have discovered, or maybe just uh, stumbled upon, and. Uh, just as a general disclaimer, we actually do agree intuitively with the principle that makes uh, UPB unassailable. However, we think we have discovered a way to demonstrate that logically, strictly logically, the proof that UPB is unassailable as well as the proof that praxeology itself is unassailable are not logically consistent. Does that make any sense? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I want to really differentiate. And now, I'm no expert on Hoppy's uh, argumentation ethics. My understanding of it is that there are a number of axioms or norms or principles that you have to accept in order to have a rational discussion. And you cannot have a rational discussion while violating the premises that make rational discussion possible. That's my, you know, again, amateur understanding I've, I've got. His book, uh, I've got articles, I have not had time to go through them. That is not particularly essential to, to UPB. Uh, and to me, it's always interesting when people approach the topic of UPB, they really get, I think, drawn into the argumentation ethics, which are put forward as supports for the, the principles explained later in the book at the beginning. But everybody seems to avoid what I think is the most powerful and useful aspect of UPB, which is the argument, you know, the two guys in the room, they can't both simultaneously follow uh, a UPB commandment called thou shalt murder, thou shalt rape, thou shalt uh, steal, thou shalt assault. Uh, and so it's those areas where I think UPB has the most value to, um, to offer. And that's not something that people talk about. Uh, I think they get knotted up on the uh, uh, argumentation ethics of it, which, you know, may, may be I think it's definitely worth talking about, but even if we dump all the argumentation ethics um, aside, it still can't be sustained that thou shalt murder can be a universally preferable behavior, or thou shalt kill, 
uh, sorry, oh, thou shalt murder, thou shalt steal, thou shalt assault, thou shalt rape, can't work from that standpoint. And so I really just wanted to focus on that. That having been said, uh, I did have some criticisms of what I read on the thread uh, around, uh, if I understood it rightly, the argument is sort of that you can say, nobody have, has uh, self-ownership except for you and I. Is that sort of, um, uh, except for you and me, is that sort of where you're coming from? Well, not necessarily, but that's a pro one of the approaches that you could take. Uh, I went to the, well, let me backtrack a little bit and say that, yes, the reason that people feel drawn to uh, argumentation ethics, that UPB kind of resonates with argumentation ethics, and it, and by the way, you should read the book. It's pretty interesting. I mean, it's probably a little bit long, but it's pretty interesting, and you should take a look at it. You're going to enjoy it yourself. I mean, I'm talking about the human action book, if that's the book you're speaking about. The reason people feel um, drawn or they remember, they are reminded of argumentation ethics when they touch UPB is because, well, just like it's my impression, it's kind of our impression that Mises and you have both uh, taken Kant and run with it in the sense that uh, you have proposed that a rule for it to be valid needs to be universal. And so you accept universality, and in, in the course of accepting universality, that makes the rule unassailable. Because for me to um, say, no, this rule is wrong, because I can propose uh, uh, the refutation that is non-universal, uh, I can demonstrate that the rule is not valid. However, I would need to accept universality first, I mean, as conceived by Kant, to to say yes, uh, absolutely, I agree uh, with uh, UPB conceptually. But that's the thing, right? You can easily prove that universality only with logic. If you rely solely on logic, you can easily prove that universality and the idea of in its unassailability is not necessarily true, that you can actually come up with at least a conceptual example. Now, let me disclaim that again by saying that, yes, uh, we do agree that uh, this uh, concept of, yes, you can't be in a room with another person and say the rule I'm going to propose is murder is legitimate and it's morally good and then because, well, we end up at, uh, at each other's throats and somebody would die, if not both people, and then, of course... I'm sorry, I, I hate to interrupt thing. you. I just, you know, in the interest of time, if you could talk about not what you agree with, which may not be particularly fruitful, but where you find the errors or contradictions are, let's make sure we dig into that. Sure. Uh, so, so, sounds fine uh, with me. Let me go directly to the contradiction itself. So, uh, yeah, I think this is... A, uh, uh, okay, this is great. So, the argument that UPV makes is truth is, uh, this is the argument that, that UPV makes, is that truth is preferable for all people, uh, and of course it cannot be denied, because in order to deny I'm it... I'm sorry, I hate one, to stop you at the beginning there, but did you say truth is preferable to all people? No, I said truth is preferable for all people, but that's basically the same. Uh, I correct Sorry, I don't wrong. agree that truth is. I, I don't agree that truth is preferable to all people. You don't agree that truth is preferable for all people? No, I mean, if truth were preferable to all people, there would be no need for philosophy. Uh, I mean, I so for instance, the Pope, I wouldn't say, is necessarily invested in truth. A con artist is not necessarily invested in truth. Um, uh, a criminal who's trying to avoid conviction is not interested in truth. Um, 
you could sort of go go on and on. But I think there are lots of people who vastly prefer uh, falsehood to to truth. All right. I I don't mean to argue that tr all people do in fact prefer truth, but rather that truth is preferable for them. We're taking apart the assertion that truth is universally preferable by saying for all people truth is preferable. We've put a categorical well, see, qualifier. No, but I don't. You could say that a con man is better off if he if he gives up the con and starts living an honest life, but um, but but he would probably reject that. I mean, you could say to Saddam Hussein, you know, you're going to be happier if you stop torturing and murdering people. Uh, but um, and I'm sure maybe some people did make that argument, however briefly in his presence. But he didn't believe that, and uh, he could continue, he could just reject that and say no. The power is, is everything. The power to control, the power to amass resources. Genghis Khan would say the power to murder people and spread your seed would be the key. Uh, so I think there are lots of people who would reject the truth and, and virtue uh, and would put other rules uh, in their place around, you know, well, whatever you can get, you know, the, the, the Nietzschean will to power, whatever you can uh, trick or lie or force your way into getting in terms of resources is the good. And, you know, the sort of supposedly good people are just these mealy-mouthed, weak people who try to control you by uh, setting up these pretend universals. Again, you could sort of make this argument. I don't think that, um, I, I, in my experience, the vast majority of people actively dislike and fear uh, truth. Uh, you know, whenever you sort of bring some basic truths like taxation is forced to people, uh, you know, they recoil and, and often attack and, and feel alienated and, and get hostile. So in my experience, the vast majority of people uh, don't like truth uh, in, in any philosophical sense. So can I ask you a question? Of course. Is it your contention that Truth is universal. Uh, truth is universally preferable. Not a correct statement. Well, see, but this is this is the challenge of definitions. What I will say is that if somebody is correcting me according to a universal, then that person is implicitly stating that truth is preferable to falsehood. They may be explicitly stating, but it certainly is there in the argument. If somebody says to me, Steph, you're wrong about X, and you need to correct your perspective or your opinion then what they're saying is truth is better than falsehood and I'm not asking you to conform to my opinion but I'm asking you to conform to objective empirical universal facts right so if I say you know the 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 sun goes around the earth and uh, somebody says to me no that's incorrect the earth goes around the sun what they're saying is it's better to believe something that is true it's not just slightly better it's hundred and fifty percent better it's, it's perfectly better so to speak and also that there is an objective truth called the earth goes around the sun, which is not just my opinion, but it's universally true. So people who are correcting me about the earth-centered or heliocentered model of the universe are correcting me according to universals, according to reason and evidence. It's not personal, uh, and they're saying that it is far better, infinitely better, to believe something that is true rather than something is false. They don't say, well, I'd kind of prefer it if you would accept my personal model of the solar system, which is that you know we all orbit around Newt Gingrich. Uh, they're they're saying no. This is you're you're 100 wrong. Uh, you you need to conform your opinions to that which is true and correct and empirical and rational. And it's not a matter of opinion. It's not a matter of perspective. It's not a matter of, of minor preference. It is an absolute preference to conform your uh, ideas or your arguments to that which is true, uh, or conversely to that which is uh, logical. Both, I guess, empirical and or logical. Does that make any sense? Uh, okay. So to. Be sure that what you said, you don't agree to the statement truth is universally preferable, but you claim that 
uh, when somebody is in a debate, they are using the concept truth is preferable to falsehood in this debate at the very least. And yes, that means I agree. And I would like to be go on the record and says and say yeah. And, and so sorry to interrupt we again, but I, I wouldn't. Sorry to go on the record again, but I would not uh, even say that it's uh, necessarily a debate. It could just be a statement. Somebody says yeah, to me, correct. two and two is five, and I say, no, two and two is four. That, there's no place to debate from there, right? So it can just be, it doesn't have to be a debate or an argument. It can simply be a statement. Correct. Yes, I completely agree with that. I mean, if I tell somebody, you know what, I'll be honest with you. you uh, you've been thinking that X is true and X is not false because of Y and Z and W. I am relying on the fact that the person who's talking to me and myself, at least the both of us, know, you know what, truth is preferable to falsehood, at least in this context. Right. Well, and of course, if I say that the sun goes around the world, I'm saying that the contents of that proposition are slavishly derived from reality. I'm not saying it's my opinion. I'm not saying I had a dream last night that we all orbited a grape. Isn't that an interesting dream? That, that would not be a truth statement about anything other than my claim of the content of my dream. So if I say that the sun goes around the earth, I'm saying that I have that opinion because that's the way it is in reality. That my opinion is in a sense like the shadow cast by a statue called reality. And wherever the statue is, that's where my shadow is. So if I say something is true, I, and then I'm saying, well, I am accurately describing that which is. And if I'm not, then I need to, you know, if the statue moves, then my shadow, which is my derived perspective on that which is true, if the truth turns out to be something different than what I'm saying, then my shadow has to follow it. Of course, most people want, they're going to keep, they want to keep the shadow there, even though the statue moves, which of course is not rational. So uh, anybody who makes a, a, a true statement about reality is accepting a whole bunch of things, uh, you know, objectivity, universality, truth is infinitely preferable to falsehood and so on. Uh, and so when I correct someone and say, no, the earth goes around the sun, uh, I am attempting to move their statue. And, you know, if they're rational and, and healthy and, and responsible and mature, then the shadow will follow the statue. Then they will say, oh, I, now I've seen your proof and I understand. Okay, so sorry, I was incorrect. Since I'm deriving my arguments or my perspectives or my, quote, opinions from reality, then since reality is different than I thought, then uh, I need to change my, my argument, since they are mere slaves to that which is. Yes, that is what uh, Eliezer calls updating your beliefs, and I agree with that. However, you just said that when you're argumenting with somebody, you're having a conversation about something, you implicitly accept universality, which is why I got the impression that there's a statement you've made at some point, if I recall correctly, maybe I'm recalling it completely wrong, that truth is preferable for all people, that you can derive the idea that truth is preferable from all people from the idea that truth is preferable for the person I'm talking to while we're de debating anything, right? Or we're well, but let me, let me ask it. you, sorry to interrupt, but let me ask you your experience of debating with people. Do you find that truth is preferable to people, that people say, well, I, my beliefs are slavishly derived from reality, and when you prove to them that the reality is different than what they think, do they change their beliefs? Oh, that's a very tricky question. I will say the following. I think that when I've debated with people, and oh, I've debated a lot, people don't actually prefer the truth. And you know that, right? People get Oh, I know, tragic. absolutely. Yeah. I wouldn't have but to have so many shows if uh, people preferred the truth. I don't, that's the thing. I 
I'm making the distinction between people should prefer the truth and people do prefer the truth. And definitely people don't prefer the truth. But people, the question is, should they prefer the truth over falsehood? And uh, is that universal? This is why I made the, the whole uh, logic. That's why I make, that's, ha that's actually when I, start, uh, when I started. And that's how I made a whole logical analysis with my girlfriend. And we got to this conclusion that I'm not sure we have shared yet. But is there a difference between people do prefer the truth and people should prefer the truth, in your opinion? Well, I think that uh, your, uh, the, the confusion is that what most people mean by truth is a piece of icing I put upon my shit cake of delusion in order to make it taste better, right? So people grow up with all of these nonsense things around around countries and, and, and gods and uh, sports teams and nationalism and patriotism and my army is better than your army. They grow up with all of this nonsense. And it's all local, regional, cultural prejudice. No question, no doubt about that at all. And what they do is that they would feel very humiliated emotionally if they had to say, well, I'm just a slave to my local cultural prejudices. So what they do is they go out into the world and they seek out confirmation bias. And we're all prone to this. It's natural uh, and it's not necessarily unhealthy. It's just something you need to keep an eye on. And so if, you're, if you grow up as a Christian, then you're going to read a lot of pro-Christian works and you're going to uh, you know, find ways of, of maintaining your faith and your belief. Uh, and if you're a statist, you're going to go out and say, well, the state does all these good things. And if the state didn't do these good things, they wouldn't get done. And so you'd use an argument from effect and you'd use the social contract. So people grow up stuffed to the gills with ex uh, dis um, destructive and exploitive lies. And what they do is they then claim, in order to avoid the humiliation of having been lied to and ground into a kind of ghastly gray cultural paste to be used as mortar in the brick walls in the service of the masters, they go out and they say, all of these lies that I was fed are true. They're real. They're right. They're valid. They're true. And that's what most people mean by truth, is the confirmation bias that arises out of the scar tissue of having been force-fed, literally force-fed lies almost their whole life. And that's what most people mean by truth. It is an ex post facto justification to cover up the irrational indoctrination that they've been subjected to. And so when you start to show them that what they believe is not true, you start to expose the emotional wounds that come from having been lied to, manipulated, controlled, and turned into a form of statist or religious or familial livestock. And so people don't want that, so they, 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 they jump back, they recoil, they start making up new things. It's like, you know, when you poke a squid, it squirts out underwater a whole bunch of ink. And uh, this metaphor works better before the internet, but that's what most people's writing and argument and this and that is all about. People write books in order to cover up the lies that they've been told and justify them. And they go to like-minded um, newspapers and, and magazines and, and people and websites and, and all of that to reinforce the, this supposed truth. And so when you say, do people prefer truth, uh, I don't think that the word truth, as we use it philosophically, it's almost diametrically opposed to what most people use or believe that the word truth represents, which is a confirmation that is false of their existing biases. Well, correct. And I don't mean to interrupt you, but uh, we're starting from your definition of truth here, right? We have assumed that we're not talking about truth as in the product of the indoctrination and the scar tissue that's covering the wounds that people have, which we agree with. I am talking, and we are actually making this effort using the definition 
correspondence with reality, which is the definition that you've set forth numerous times. Yes, sorry, but you're bringing in the definition of what most people prefer. That's why we're talking about this. That's not my definition. And we really so, don't want to be bringing up what most people do prefer. We want to bring up preferable, not preferred. This yes, I agree. I, so let's drop the sort of what most people prefer and just go with what truth is, which I think is more you. productive. I, think that I mean, I'm glad you yes. talked about it, but to, to clarify my position, but let's, let's move on. Correct. So yeah, we're just basically pointing out that we only invoke the concept of what most people prefer, so we can point out the dichotomy between truth is preferred by people, which is false, more for the most part, and truth is preferable by people, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you've made the statement before. Well, again, when you say truth is not preferable to people, they wouldn't agree with you. Like, nobody says, I believe stuff that isn't true, but I pretend to myself that it is true, right? They genuinely believe that it is true, right? So, you know, neocons who supported the war, and they genuinely believe that this was a just and moral action. Christopher Hitchens went to his untimely grave defending uh, his um, support for the Bush invasion of Iraq in, in 03, uh, believing that, you know, it doesn't matter what we did as long as we removed the sort of the mafia criminal family uh, of the Husseins from, from power. Uh, so he, he didn't say, well, I know it's not true, but I'm going to hold to that opinion anyway. So when pe people will, will tell you that they absolutely believe in truth and, and that their, uh, their opinions and their arguments are derived from that which is and that which is right and that which is moral, that which is empirical, that which is rational. It's just that it's not, for the most part. But again, I, I don't want to get stuck on that, but I think it's really important to understand that most people will tell you that what they believe is true. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So if I phrase it like this, uh, I'm going to make a proposition. Can you tell me if you agree or not? I can. All right, so if I state the proposition, all people at all times and at all places should prefer truth to falsehood, where truth is defined as correspondence with reality. Would you agree with that? I would not. All right. Uh, I'm curious now. Um, why wouldn't you agree with that? Well, I mean, I, I can think of situations where lying is better than truth, right? I mean, it's the old argument that says someone bursts into your house and says, where's your wife? I want to kill her. You're not going to tell the guy. Or imagine uh, somebody's dying. They've been in a car crash with their wife and their daughter, and they're dying, and their wife and daughter have died. And they say, how is my wife and daughter? I would be damn tempted to say, they're fine, they're going to live on, so that his last few minutes wouldn't be untold agony. Uh, I can see where falsehood would be preferable to truth. Uh, I could think of a million uh, situations where that would be the case. So I'm not sure that it's universally true that we would always want to, uh, uh, to say that. So, uh, look, I agree with that. Of course, if you're in a situation, if you're in a lifeboat scenario, the one that you proposed just right now, uh, feel free to jump in and interrupt me if I'm wrong. Uh, if you're in a scenario like that, obviously truth is definitely not preferable, right? Uh, We're trying to sort of get to the root of a statement that I think that we've heard you make in some videos and, and possibly in the I can, I can tell you what the statement is, I think. Sorry to interrupt. I can tell you what the statement is, I think, that you're trying to get a hold of. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, that a, cl a claim for universal truth must be both universal and true. If somebody claims that something is true and universal, then it must in fact be true and universal. And I know that's almost tautological, it's an A is A thing, but it's something that I think that's what we're trying to get at. So people may not prefer truth. Uh, they may prefer lies, they may have lies in their heart which they cover up with a supposed truth which is impenetrable, there may be all this nonsense going on. But if someone comes to me and says, for instance, 
um, that uh, the Earth goes around the sun, then they're making a universal truth claim. And that claim must be then both universal and true in order for it to be valid. Now, the reason we have to state that so boldly is because most people make these truth claims without understanding the need for universality, objectivity, and, of course, Can conformity I, uh, to that empirical and rational. I don't mean to interrupt you, but uh, no, no, go ahead. That's that's not the claim that we were referring to. That's not the claim we we think we've seen you make. But I will go on the record to say that that claim you just made, I of course completely agree with. Uh, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any doubt in this conversation that the claim is true, right? That if I make a proposition and the proposition is true, necessarily the proposition must be true for everybody. Otherwise, it's just an opinion, right? Right. And so where this comes in is when people say. Uh, universally preferable behavior is invalid and therefore you should abandon that standard, then this is a self-contradictory statement, right? Because they're claiming that it is that truth is preferable to falsehood, that universality is the standard of truth, and therefore we should use that to reject both universality and preference uh, for, for truth. And so that is something that um, that can't work. Like if I go up to the old determinist thing, if I go up to someone and say, it is impossible for you to change your mind and you need to agree with me with that on that, even though you don't hold that opinion already, that is a self-contradictory statement. So um, that's where I think the, the value comes in. You can't reject universally preferable behavior without using universally preferable behavior. And so that to me is that where is uh, most people have problems at the beginning of the theory. That argument that you just made is the one that we want to call into question because I think yep. that you have an objection there. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So uh, I am not sure because I was reading the chat. <laughs> Can you state the, the, the argument again? Actually, go ahead. I, what he actually said was that you can't deny universally preferable behavior without essentially confirming it by arguing. Yes, yes, this is closer. Let me, Steph, let me run you through the, through the deduction we've made and please feel free to point out any flaws, all right? Mm -hmm. All right, so um, to the extent that I know, uh, what we do is we propose a rule, right? And now we, right? But we say, all right, so we're having a conversation with somebody and this somebody is talking to us as well and so we, they will make a number of truth-bearing claims. Implicit in those truth-bearing claims that we're making is the fact that the, the other person should prefer truth because, well, if he prefers falsehood, I'm wasting my time. And he, if he prefers falsehood, he's had no, he has no point defending anything, right? Now, it, there comes a time in the discussion in, about UPV where people say, well, you know, you see, you have to argue for universality. And there's, therefore, we've derived this idea that uh, you can't, refute, you cannot possibly refute the statement, truth is preferable for all people. Because in doing so, in refuting the statement, you are necessarily accepting the preferability of truth for yourself and for others, right? No, no, Steve, again, you've gone back to truth is preferable to all people, which is where we started, and that is not the way that I would formulate it at all. Because that, and then you would just end up in a whole quagmire where people can quote you all sorts of people who prefer falsehood to truth. Correct. Yeah, but that we're talking about preferable, yeah, not preferred. Sorry, right? we don't want to talk about what people actually prefer. Maybe we shouldn't have our simulated conversation between the UPB supporter and the UPB denier. Yeah. Do we have that one saved here? Yeah, I'd have to go up here. 
to the parent and then navigate. But maybe it would be easier if we moved on to, uh, we, we took the same argument to the realm of human action. I can tell you what the principle is and you can tell me if you agree or not and then we can pick it up from there. What about, what about that? Well, sorry, didn't we just, well, I thought we were going to talk about UPB, the, the last argument. Sure. Uh, let me just uh, look the argument up. Uh, this is James Carlin. Well, why don't you, uh, do you want to just play the skeptic and I'll play, let's say, I'll go out on a limb and play the UPB advocate and you play the skeptic uh, and we'll just try that? Let's, let us play the skeptic and the, deni uh, and the expert again and correct us if we're wrong because we right. we're going to get feedback, okay? So you're going to be the expert, honey. I'm the expert? Yes. Okay, so I, as a UPV expert, say truth is preferable to falsehood as one of the pillars of UPV. Correct. And I'm going to deny this because, no, truth is not preferable to falsehood because I'm going to give you a random reason why. All right. I don't care about your reason actually. I say you depend on truth being preferable to falsehood in order to set forth this argumentation because if you didn't prefer truth to falsehood you wouldn't be arguing with me. Is this correct Steph? Yeah. Alright so we unpack this using, uh, here's what we do, we unpack this using predicate uh, logic to arrive at this and uh, this is Maybe we're doing the unpacking wrong, and this is where we really like the feedback that you can bring, bring to bear. So um, we're going to do the same conversation, except we're going to unpack it with predicate logic. And I'm going to have my expert on UPB start. Go ahead, honey. Okay, so I make the claim, truth is universally preferable to falsehood. Nah, truth is not universally preferable to falsehood because, you know, there's, you know, I have scar tissue and I deny truth. Aha. But you depend on truth being universally preferable to falsehood in order to set forth that assertion. You apply it by debating with me and trying to get me to see truth. Nah, not really. I only depend on truth being preferable to falsehood during this debate. And only for you and me, which is quite a smaller claim than your initial claim was, honey. That's, uh, that fails. All right. Uh, I want to hear how. <laughs> well, it's, it's an arbitrary distinction. It's like saying... Um, all human beings are mammals, except for bald guys over 40. Well, what does bald over 40 have to do with being a mammal or not? It's, it's an incidental characteristic. It's not an essential characteristic, right? The essential characteristics of mammals is, you know, give birth to young without eggs, uh, suckle their young, or warm-blooded, you know, that kind of stuff, right? So you can't create arbitrary distinctions. I mean, you can, but you're just wrong. It's like saying, uh, all the lizards in this room are geckos except for that one and and it's actually a gecko except for that one because it's blue well a blue gecko is just a blue gecko it's not a non-gecko so if you're going to create arbitrary distinctions and say well it's just for this argument uh, or it's just for you and me it's just at the moment and you I think somebody made that argument about you know self-ownership is valid only for you and me during this debate well you have to say why I mean just think about how a biologist would characterize something right you know, this eight-legged beastie is a, you know, with whatever characteristics are necessary for a spider, mandibles, no antennae, uh, a thorax, whatever the hell it is, right? Well, that's a spider. But you can't say, well, all of these black widow spiders are black widow spiders except for that one because it's slightly bigger. Well, slightly bigger doesn't have, uh, it's not a relevant categorization standard or criterion. And so you can't just create arbitrary distinctions and say, well, just for this moment, it's like saying if I have, you mean, I have a theory of physics that says, you know, all rocks fall down, except for that rock. 
well, why? Why except? If you say all rocks fall down except for that rock, then you've just created a contradiction, an arbitrary categorization that is not relevant to the, the general concept. Does that make any sense? It sort of kind of does make sense. And far be it from us uh, saying, yes, uh, men are not bi uh, man is not biped because there's some poor souls that arrive from the war, uh, limbs missing, right? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, and, and again, you can say that, that human beings are born without, you know, human beings uh, have, have a separate independence. They're not, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, a bunch of algae that grows together. You say, oh, well, we've got a Siamese twin. It's like, well, yeah, there are exceptions to these categories, but we know that there are exceptions because they're rare. So mutations, you know, human beings are born with whole upper lips, except there are some kids born with cleft palates or whatever. Uh, and they're still human beings with cleft palates, but... Uh, this isn't even th what what th what you're suggesting here is e a much more arbitrary standard because there's no reason whatsoever to confine a statement about truth, which is naturally universal, to a specific time period. Uh, it's like saying this theory of physics is valid only when McDonald's is serving hotcakes from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. It's like, well, what on earth would that mean, right? <laughs> Unless the physics theory generally involves yes. hotcakes, it would make no sense. Okay, that makes sense. However, I have this. I mean, there's two observations that I'd like to make. They're probably interrelated. Uh, the first mm -hmm. one is, you do seem to be agreeing to the rule, truth is to the to the uh, to the theory. Truth is universally preferable to falsehood, with the caveat that there may be some exceptions. Right? You do seem to be agreeing with that in this conversation. No, what I'm saying is that somebody who claims that truth is universally preferable to falsehood has to have that standard throughout the entire debate. That's all. I know that truth is not universally preferable to falsehood, right? It's so, what is implicit in the proposition of the debater. Somebody who corrects me according to a universal is correcting me because truth is universally preferable to falsehood, and I'm incorrect, and his formulation is correct, and I should have my shadow follow the moving statue of truth, and have my opinions follow, or have my perspectives or arguments follow that which is true. So if somebody comes up to me and says uh, that, that truth is universally preferable to falsehood, then I accept that. But then they can't come up and say, it is true and universal that truth is not universally preferable to falsehood, right? That, that just doesn't work. Correct. But then again, you're assuming universality in order to make this, right? And, uh, no, the other person says, is assuming universality in order to correct me. Yeah, I agree. And that means that two people are assuming universality. Universality of the truth, but not universality of the preferability for truth, right? Maybe you, I'm not, sorry, I'm not sure I follow that. Yes. Uh, maybe we need to make a distinction between instances of uh, truth-bearing statements. Look, and, just uh, forget about, forget about the, the general, sorry to interrupt, forget it, just two guys in a room. Two, just, let's just go back uh -huh. to two guys in a room, Bob and Doug, right? Yeah. So if Bob says to Doug, um, Doug says it's daytime, and it's actually nighttime, and, and so Bob says it's daytime, and Doug says, no, you're wrong, it's nighttime. Uh-huh. So what's implicit in that statement? Uh, I would say in the statement, well, in both statements, the uh, implicit uh, the implicit premise is uh, you should prefer truth. Well, yeah, but first of all, I would say first of all, uh, there's a whole bunch of rights. So first of all, the guy's saying not, I had a dream that it was daytime, even though, it, but it is, it is. I am accurately describing reality that it's daytime. The other guy says, no, it's well, nighttime. Well, that's not an implicit premise. That's the explicit one, right? 
well, uh, implicit in that it's not directly stated. It's, it's the shorthand, right? So when you say it is, right, then, then you're saying this is derived from objective, sensual, material, empirical reality, whatever, right? And so when the other guy corrects him, he's not saying, well, no, it's like they're not two guys deep in a mine and they've lost track and they say, well, I think it's daytime. I don't know. I think it's nighttime, but who knows for sure, right? He's saying, no, you're absolutely incorrect. It is nighttime, not daytime. Uh, and therefore right. you should correct your statements and blah, 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 right? So in the act of correcting someone to say it's nighttime, not daytime, you're saying that our opinions should be derived from that which is. You're saying that it is better to have opinions to conform to truth if you're claiming. Because the first guy who says it is daytime is making a truth statement that is universal and empirical and blah, 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 right? Yes. And, uh, and the other guy is saying, no, if you're going to make a statement that is, that is empirical, let's say, then it has to be empirical to that which you're claiming to talk about. In other words, it's nighttime and not daytime. So just in the act of correcting someone, there's a whole bunch of embedded stuff. We don't need to go in what everybody prefers or universally preferable to truth. Just look at what the person is actually saying in the debate at the moment. Trying to go huh. beyond that uh, is to get into a whole quagmire of what people prefer in general. And I think that's, uh, that gets very confusing. It does get very confusing. <laughs> We've been uh, spending a few days in, in this already. And, but yeah, uh, we're not disagreeing that when somebody's trying to correct another person, the person who's correcting is not arguing implicitly for you should not prefer truth. It's actually arguing for, yeah, you should prefer truth. You should derive your beliefs and opinions from facts, from reality. We do agree with that. But the problem is we have the impression that at some point you said the truth is universally preferable in reference to the idea that, let me unpack the statement again, to the idea that all people across all time should prefer truth regardless of what they do prefer. Well, listen, I'll tell you what, why don't you see if you can dig up, or sorry, let, I'm going to move on to the next caller because I think we're going round and round in circles. Why don't you see if you can dig up where I said that? Uh, I do remember saying in the great, book yeah. that there's evidence that people generally prefer UPB to denying UPB since most people uh, eat uh, and, and they're therefore alive and so uh, eating requires not subjectively preferable behavior, but universally preferable behavior, like eating food that has some nutritional value, getting some, uh, putting clothes on, getting getting something to drink, and getting some sleep, and this is all universally preferable behavior in order to stay alive and be able to debate. I, I remember talking about that, but if you can dig up where I've said uh, human beings should always universally prefer truth at all times, and all, then I would be happy to debate that, but unfortunately, I, since I can't remember it and I don't want to defend something which I don't remember saying, let's see if you can dig that up and I'm going to move on to the next caller. Uh, sounds good. Can I get a closing statement? Oh, sure. Yeah, well, I want to say something. I do appreciate a lot the work you've done. This uh, UPB is by no means, even if I can find the logical proof that one of the proofs don't actually hold, uh, UPB is a magnificent piece of work, and uh, we do actually intuitively accept it and live, try, well, we try to live our lives to the best that we can in compliance with UPB, and I think that's great. Thank you for having us here. We're going we're gonna to find where is it that you made a statement, and we're going to point it to you the next time we get an opportunity. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds fantastic. I mean, I really have enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to more, and I also want to compliment you on being the most critical about that which you most intuitively want to accept because that's where a lot of people glide over. It's like, oh, good, it denies theft and, and murder and rape and assault, and, and that's great, so let's... Uh, but to be critical about that, I think, is really good. What I would focus on in particular, though, is just the, the Bob and Doug in the room stuff uh, around theft and murder and rape and all that sort of stuff. Um, the, 
that I think is where the real power of UPB is. And that's nobody gets like nobody talks about that stuff and gets stuck. Everyone gets stuck I, I on whether that, UPB yes. is valid or not. I, again, I would focus on that just in terms of the interest of we don't live forever. And, um, you know, but if you found logical problems in UPB, fantastic. That just means that my explication of it is is less than perfect, which I'm sure it is. Uh, and that only affirms UPB. In other words, if there's a deviation from reason and evidence in the book UPB, that is only confirmation of the value of reason and evidence as UPB. So, good. I mean, I'm happy to correct it uh, where it's uh, where it's fallen short. Uh, looking forward for the second edition of UPB, then. Yes, thank you so much. All right, James, <laughs> have we have uh, another caller on the line? Or a question dans la chat room. Uh, we don't have any other callers on the line right now. Um, I've been asking for questions in the chat. Uh, see if anyone comes and pastes what they're saying. Well, if uh, if we don't, and the other couple who were already listening want to uh, talk about, uh, I think there was one that came up around property rights. I'm happy to talk about that. I didn't want to um, uh, continue on the conversation if other people were chomping at the bit, but if we have a Christmas dearth of new callers, I'm happy to return to our brilliant couple who have me on stereo here from this side and then from this side. Ooh, I'm going back and forth. I don't know how long you want to wait. Uh, give it a couple of seconds, but if they want to come back, then, um, you know, I'd say let's go for that. Yeah, we'll be fine with that. We yeah, do, so there oh, was sorry. one that... Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> we, do have a question the, we do have a question in the chat. Uh, I think you maybe covered it before, but uh, it's about Ron Paul. Um, and uh, he asks, uh, would Steph prefer to win? Ah, excuse me, starting over. Would Steph prefer to see Ron Paul win the presidency or not? In other words, does Steph think the positives, less immediate government, of his election would outweigh the negatives, give libertarianism a bad name in the face of impending doom, or etc.? Um, so, positive or negatives of Ron Paul? Your take? I don't know. I mean. I it's 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 a it's a great question. It really is. I was just talking about this with a friend the other day. Um, I mean, the uh, the the intellectual, philosophical, vulcanized, bloodless part of me knows that it would be a bad thing. I think for for Ron Paul to gain the pre presidency because uh, the the system is so far gone that he would forever be remembered as the guy who went bubbling down, hat floating with the Titanic, and that would I think besmirch libertarianism for many, many, many decades, if not centuries. But that having been said, I mean, if if he won the presidency, let's just say, let's just say he won the nomination, I guess in January, and he won the presidency. I mean, I, I swear to God, part of me would just be glued to the TV like, holy shit, what is this man going to be able to achieve? Because look, I, I could entirely have my head up my ass and be entirely wrong about political action. I think I put forward some pretty good arguments with, with lots of evidence and, and statistics and so on about why. Uh, I, I consider it uh, impossible, but nobody can fully predict the future. There are, uh, you know, a billion, bajillion variables at play in all of these kinds of situations. So uh, I don't think that it's a good thing that he gets elected. Uh, I've made arguments to that, but this is not, um, this is not a mathematical argument. This is an argument from effect to a large part. And so if he were to get in, uh, I think it would be a disaster, and I think that uh, it would be um, a truly spectacular disaster and would set the movement back significantly. That having been said, I could be wrong. I mean, nobody has a monopoly on predicting the future. And so I would be absolutely fascinated uh, if he got in to see what was achievable. I mean, uh, people argue, they make the argument, they say, look, he, 
as the commander-in-chief of the American Armed Forces, he could shut down all the wars and close military bases overseas. My, I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Um, he could shut down federal departments. He could uh, control, minimize, or perhaps even eliminate in some areas the amount of federal intrusion into states' rights or state choices and so on. I mean, the list goes on and on of the things that he could achieve. And of course, he'd have a great bully pulpit. He could really finally get the full on audit of the Fed and, and could have a great bully pulpit for getting that information out there. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's the ring, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if he's Baromir or Aragon. Uh, it's the ring. And um, so I'm, I would be fascinated to see what would happen if he became president. Fascinated and horrified, probably. Um, but nonetheless, it would be it would be fascinating. I mean, I would absolutely love to be proven completely wrong in my arguments and estimation of the success of. And it's not a Ron Paul thing. I mean, God, I think Ron Paul's a pretty nice guy, and he's very smart, obviously, and and very dedicated, and very committed, and uh, and educated, and uh, he's a pretty good public speaker. And you know, it's it's not not him in any particular. It could be anybody, but um, I think that. Uh, it would be fascinating to see what would happen. I would have the same qualms about any libertarian uh, presidential candidate. So I don't want him to get in, but I would be fascinated to see what would happen if he did get in. And I would be overjoyed to have my, to have my head proven to be completely up my ass for the last couple of years uh, and for significant steps towards freedom to be achieved through Ron Paul. I mean, obviously, that would be fantastic, um, but I don't think that is, uh, is going to be the case at all. I, I have very little doubt that it would be disastrous uh, all around. But again, I mean, I could be wrong. So um, I don't want him to get in, but I'd be fascinated to see what happens if he does. All right, we'll see if there's any other questions. Otherwise, we can move on to the caller. Uh, there is an interesting question. I'm not sure if it requires some more uh, uh, some more context, but um, someone says that they sent you an article about uh, Curry County in Oregon, and that they're going broke for really real this time. Uh, and his comments are: No one in local government has any idea even how to proceed. In other words, how to dissolve the county government, and carry on. What would you realistically suggest to them? Um, I suppose to either the people in government or the people in the county. We know move immediately to volunteerism isn't entirely realistic out of the gate. Uh, but, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, it would just tell them to privatize everything. Sell, every, sell, sell, sell everything you could off to the highest bidder. Sell the schools off, sell the roads off, sell the sanitation, sell everything. Use that to pay the debts as best you can. Uh, hopefully return as much as you can to the... Or I, I repudiate the debts. I mean, all government debts are illegitimate and unjust and predatory. Uh, and so, uh, you know, repudiate the debts, um, you know, sell that stuff off as much as you can to the most uh, committed and skillful entrepreneurs, uh, and uh, let's have an experiment in seeing how not shoving guns down people's throats uh, gets the voice of the people out uh, through customers and dollar, the, the democracy of the dollar. So, yeah, I mean, let's sell that stuff. I mean, a lot of that's still going to happen anyway. The government starts to run out of money. They're, they're going to start selling off assets like uh, like crazy. And, um, of course, bringing troops home, that's going to happen with the collapse of the currency or at least the collapse of the um, cash flow uh, in the government as it stands. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that would be my advice uh, to them. All right. Let's see. 
Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's fundamentally it's not, it's not a, um, an argument from economic efficiency, though that would occur, but it's fundamentally just an argument from um, voluntarism versus violence. I mean, wherever you can move a transaction from violence to voluntarism, you have added another star to the uh, Milky Way of growing virtue in the night sky. All right, well, I have someone who has a question about sort of, sort of specific what they're doing with their jobs, but um, I'll try to get them on the call so you can have a chat. Uh, it is. Um, I mean, I've been asked for some of my opinions on these Ron Paul newsletters, uh, by the by. Um, yeah, I mean, what's in them is uh, kind of unsavory. This is the stuff that was floating around in the 90s. The authorship remains unknown or unadmitted. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's nasty, of course. I mean, some of the stuff that's in there. But, um, of course, as I've said before, you'll know Ron Paul is getting some significant traction when a huge amount of slander, mud, lies, and libel gets thrown at him. Uh, and that is as predictable as sunrise. Uh, it is a way, of course, of short-circuiting any moral or philosophical arguments that he may have. It's a way of avoiding the question of what is the Federal Reserve. It's a way of avoiding the question what is imperialism. It's a way of avoiding the question what is isolationism in fact, which simply means not bombing uh, other people into the, um, into the stratosphere. Uh, so all of this stuff is a way of getting people to talk about supposedly moral issues uh, and um, uh, rather than talk about this racism, the supposed racism, rather than talking about any of the real issues that are going on, like what is the gold standard and what does it mean and so on. Uh, I think it is a, is a shame. Uh, I think that um, his uh, avowal that, you know, he didn't read any of this stuff, uh, he disavows it, he wasn't aware of what was in the newsletter under his name, until 10 years after the fact. It solves one problem, of course, while creating another, because people have concerns about his management abilities if his stuff goes out with his name on it. That is pretty unsavory, um, and he just doesn't even know about it. That's, that's, a, that's a problem. Uh, it would be beneficial, you know, whoever wrote this stuff for the Ron Paul newsletter, it would be enormously beneficial if that person, assuming that he or she is still alive, if that person were to come forward, and say, I snuck this stuff in there, uh, I was drinking heavily at the time, I was a bad guy, uh, I've since reformed, uh, you know, pour the heat on me, uh, I slipped it into the printer just before it went out, after Ron Paul had read the proofs, and uh, mea culpa, bad me. Whoever did write that stuff should be the one coming forward. Uh, if that person is deceased, then there must be somebody in the organization who's still alive who would know who did that. Uh, that's what needs to to happen to to come forward. And if that isn't happening, then my guess would be that whoever wrote that stuff is still in the Rumpel orbit, um, and that would probably be why uh, these disclosures are not coming forward again. It's all speculation, and I don't know. It's not particularly relevant, I think, um, but it is, uh, you know, it is sadly tragic the way the media works, and it just pick up whatever they can to, to throw at people, and um, rather than deal with any intelligent issues at all. I mean, I'm not saying it's unimportant, but relative to his fiscal positions and his position on foreign positions on foreign policy it's pretty unimportant all right well we have a caller on the line uh, go ahead 
Hi, Steph. Uh, my name's Josh. Hey. Hey, hey there. Big fan. Well, thank you. Merry Christmas to you, Josh. Back at you. Um, I actually just had a question. I took a job a little over a year and a half ago um, doing social media marketing for a small retail shop, and I have, with my limited skills, since blown the business up into a million dollars annual revenue plus, and um, on and on, so the business is going extremely successfully, and in the time, the year and a half that I've been working there, I've gotten a $2 raise and one time a $50 bonus for the new year Oof. last year. Ooh, and, I'm so uh, sorry. I feel like golden handcuffs around here, and I love your career advice. I want to know what you have to say. Wow. And obviously, um, I'm not sure where the business started, but you feel or believe or accept, I think, that, that you've had a good deal to do with growing the business significantly? Yes. And why do you think you've not been recognized, I think, in a fair way? Well, about four months, five months into being hired um, and already expanding the business, the boss hired his cousin as well, some of my own age, who quickly was set to my salary level and kind of mirrored my responsibilities and had been groomed since then to kind of take over as a, as a manager. And I think that has a big factor to do with it. Right. So uh, it's the preferential nepotism is uh, holding you from the just gold that should be pouring down your staircase? <laughs> yep. All right. Well, um, I've negotiated salaries both, of course, as an employee and as a manager uh, further up the chain. And there's, there's two ways that you can do it. I mean, there may be, these are the two that I've used, and I hope that they're useful. The first, of course, is to get industry standard uh, pay, and there are websites out there, there are reports that you can order that will give you the average pay by geographical location, so you obviously get the closest job to the closest to you. And they will give you uh, some sort of sense of salary and bonuses and this and that and the other. And, and that will give you some sense of where you stand in the industry as a whole. It's not perfect, but it's a place to start. And at one job, I was able to get about 20% extra for my employees simply by comparing their salaries to industry averages for those positions in the geographical region that the company worked in. Um, so that's you know one way of making it somewhat objective. The second, of course, which I think is more powerful and, and more compelling, is you need to make a business case for your raise. All right, so you can say, well, I, when I started, this company was doing a quarter million. Now, two years later, it's doing a million. Let's say that I can take credit for half of that, so I'm getting 750000 extra in. Let's say your overhead is 10%, so I'm getting $75,000 more. Uh, sorry, your profit's at 10%, so you're getting $75,000 more a year in here. Um, you know, what if I were to get just 10% of that? So 1% of, of everything that I've uh, helped you increase, that's 7500 bucks a year. Uh, and here's why. Now, if you have to go and hire someone else, which I hope you won't have to do, you know, here's the average cost. You know, it costs between twenty to forty thousand dollars to replace a mid-level manager, and there's always the risk the new person isn't going to work out. So, um, you know, I, I'm just giving you the real sketch. There's lots of different ways you can do it, but uh, I think you need to make the business case. The managers may not be aware of the degree to which your contributions have affected this uh, this growth, and if you make that case uh, and say, look, uh, given how much money I've driven into the company, you know, if I were a salesman, I'd be earning, you know, six. 8, 10, 12% uh, a year on these sales or more. And um, 
I consider myself as a marketer responsible for these increased sales to, to at least some percentage. And then what you, you go in with a spreadsheet and you can say, look, you may disagree with my calculations. You may say, well, look, I don't think you're responsible for 50%, maybe 35%. It's like, okay, well, let's adjust it to that. Or let's meet in the middle. And you can go in and you can just do it, you know, overhead projector and you can tweak the numbers. And then you get them thinking just in terms of how much value you've contributed to the business, uh, how much extra money they're making because of what you're doing. And that will get them, you may not get everything you want in that meeting, but you will at least start putting them in that mindset about how things are going. So there may be aspects of the business that you're not aware of uh, where losses may be occurring. It's good to start digging into those. Um, so that would be my suggestion. Does that, does that help at all? Uh, it does a little bit. I was also wondering too, maybe if it was a good idea when you're saying to get kind of a, a comparison on my salary with the other companies to go to not necessarily the competitors, but people that are in the same industry and see if they're looking to try to get a job to leverage the, the possibility of quitting and working elsewhere against them. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm not a big fan of ultimatums in the business world. I think ultimatums in the business world are sort of like ultimatums in romantic relationships. Like, you know, give me a ring buster or I'm moving out. Uh, that's not, that doesn't bode well for the future of that relationship. You may get the ring, but you're not getting the commitment. You're forcing the commitment. And so if you sort of go in and say, I want to raise or I'm going to quit, you may get the raise, but I don't think that's good for your long-term relationship because you haven't taught them anything it's like it's like sort of threatening a child so to speak do this or i'll punish you well they don't learn anything i think you want to you want to try and enroll them or encourage them to see things from the perspective of how much value you're actually adding to the business so that they appreciate what you're doing now maybe they're selfish jerks and they won't do that or whatever but that's important to know you don't want to get a commitment to a raise out of a selfish jerk because a selfish jerk may give you that raise but he'll find other ways to to make you pay and what you've done then is you've said, okay, if you give me this raise, then I'll stay. But you haven't dealt with the problems in the working conditions. So you may stay, but you haven't actually improved your working conditions or made a rational case that the other person has accepted. That stuff almost always bounces back to bite you in the other hand. So let's say you stay and you end up with more problems in your workforce. Well, what's going to happen is you're going to get a shitty recommendation to, to your next job and that's going to hurt you or whatever, right? So... You know, you can certainly cast your net about and say, you know, if you were to hire me, sort of what salary would I be looking at if you know anyone in the industry or whatever. But to sort of go in there with a job offer or slam it on the table and say, give me a raise or I'm gone, I think is uh, is punitive, uh, punitive, it's confrontational, uh, and it does not sow the seeds for a productive and happy working relationship down the road. Okay. Well, I, I really appreciate your advice. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, l let me know how it goes. Uh, and, of course... Like everyone who I give job advice to, if it doesn't work out, you can live in my basement. <laughs> All right, awesome. All right, thanks, man. Thank you so much. Bye. Oh, we had another caller join. I wasn't clear on whether he had something to contribute, or he was just coming on to listen. So if you are looking to chat, uh, go ahead. Otherwise, I think we can return to our other callers. From earlier. Right. Yeah, can I just jump in? You yes, can. That indeed. was you. That was you I was talking about. Sorry, but for, sorry for not being clear. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Steph, uh, and Merry Christmas to you, too. Merry Christmas to you, my friend. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Uh, I had a couple of things I'd love to uh, just hear your opinions on. Um, one thing is, uh, 
uh, one thing I I think I'd I'd like you to almost write on if you could uh, is uh, uh, one thing I just noticed myself is uh, that whenever you get a contentious kind of uh, issue like about is the government valid uh, just for example you know you have uh, you you see quite a variety an interesting variety of thought and thinkers you know especially in a kind of wide open forum like uh, you get on the internet or fdr you you get people who really seem to be able to put together some pretty good sequences of uh, insight and uh, logic and so on. And then other people who, you know, <laughs> they seem to be at first glance just trolling. And, and yet it's, uh, it's, so, it's so dynamic, it's exciting, you know, but because you don't know for sure. It, it could be just somebody who is inexperienced at expressing things in a debate forum and uh you know it's just like uh, so much going on I'd, I'd love to hear you kind of address the issues of uh you know you got to give some people a little room to grow in their ability to to think let alone express their thoughts and uh, debate and uh, uh you know that sort of thing and yet other people you know, it just seems like a complete waste of time, and it really is a waste of time, you know, if you sort of cater to their little uh, tantrums or whatever they are offering, you know, and it's it's not always easy to to spot who's who and that sort of thing. And uh, Yeah, and look, there, are, there yeah. are the genuine truth seekers who are very few and far between. And I, I say that with humility. I certainly have not been a genuine truth seeker for a good chunk of my adult life. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in other words, the truth at all costs, regardless of its effect upon my personal preferences or, or history or whatever. So, yeah. you know, it is with humility that I say that the, because in my own life, being a truth seeker at all costs has been the minority of my adult, my adult existence, I think, since I started FDR before, shortly before. But most people are not truth seekers at all costs. And a lot of people, um, when you talk to them about the truth they as i mentioned before they have this emotional reaction because it's threatening and it's not be it's not because they fear the truth it's because they fear criticism condemnation isolation rejection alienation and ostracism from those around them uh yeah. this is the the great false rainbow colored cultural spider web we call relationships that can't usually stand the weight of a single philosophical feather it's it's tragic and horrifying but that's the reality that most people are not that interested in truth they're interested in defending a particular position and it's Dan the Torpedoes throw all castaways overboard and uh, everyone who is not on the approved list gets tossed out of the club on their ass. So that's very few people. Now there are people who, it's, it's a hard, uh, you see this on the message board sometimes, it's a hard thing to get your head around. It's hard for me to get my head around it. Uh, they're just shit disturbers. And what happens is they see an opening where they can create friction, cause trouble, infect other people with irascibility and they will then try to, to, to stir up uh, trouble. And it's because, of course, a highly dysfunctional and abused uh, history and probably to the point where they themselves have become abusers. And that, that occurs quite a bit. Uh, and you can, as I mentioned on the board recently, you can see that when, you know, somebody damns you morally for being morally damning. <laughs> you know, like they did, they're doing exactly, in fact, turned up to 10 what they're criticizing. And that is, I mean, 
I don't know yeah. what the technical term is, but that's just being a shit disturber where you just sort of, you sound your crazy horn and you wait to see who it summons and, and that happens too. And those people, of course, you simply can't engage with because they're not being honest about what's troubling them. So um, this the, philosophy is a series of rules uh, and like, like nutrition, like science, is a series of rules and standards. And the majority of people, when they encounter rules and standards, get really angry uh, because, because rules and standards have been used to control and crush them. And and yeah. and humiliate them, and that is that is a problem, right? I mean, but, so there was this, a guy who's been posting for about ten months, and I did a calculation. He was posting, you know, between five and six posts every single day, long posts. English is not his first language. He's a smart guy. I like him. I gave him some private coaching on his videos, um, but it was causing disruption for people on the board, and it was um, alienating people who wanted to come by because you'd see just floods after flood. And it was diverting a lot of energy and attention into complicated, convoluted discussions that didn't really seem to go anywhere. And so uh, James made the decision to say, hey, listen, you know, you, you, it's nice. I appreciate you, but you got to take a break. Plus, the guy was pinging me like 10 times a day. And I just was a bit concerned that he was going too heads deep into the uh, freedom made radio world and not getting other things done that he needed to get done in his life. So we thought, you know, just take a break and blah. You know, it's not an easy situation. I mean, it wasn't like he was, I mean, he was occasionally uh, uh, abusive, but not, you know, not too bad or not too much. Uh, so it's a difficult yeah, situation. Yeah, I, right? I, and, I, uh, I, I really appreciate how uh, extremely difficult. I, I, I sympathize uh, with uh, you and James, you know, how to come down with such calls. Like, uh, I don't know how I'd handle it either. You know, I, I really don't. I know it's... It's just rough, you know. I, you got to do something, but I don't know how you come to a decision. It's tough. And, yeah, it, uh, it is tough. You know, I mean, yeah. it's balancing the needs of a highly disparate, highly intelligent, occasionally fractious and challenging community dealing with ethics, which are the most powerful electromagnetic current flowing through the human brain. So I, I think, again, I think as a community as a whole, we're doing really, really well. I mean what, over five years, there's maybe 30 people who have been asked to leave the board out of 13,000. I mean, it's tiny. I, I've been banned. I've been permanent IP banned from boards just for posting a video because I'm an anarchist or because I'm an atheist or whatever. I was like, oh, we don't let that. I mean, that's just, that to me is, like, but, but what, I mean, I'm not going to sit there and start to stir up shit on that board and say, I was banned for this and you people, I can't believe the censor because I've got yeah. better things to do with my time than to chase after people who don't want me on their message board because I have a life, right? So, uh, so it is it is a challenging uh, situation. Now, is it always handled perfectly? No, of course not. I mean, I've apologized. James has apologized uh, if we've got bad information or made decisions which you know, under the light of you know, cooler heads prevail, uh, is not the right decision. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's not. But you do you know you do the best you can with the information that you have at the moment, with the interests of the community as a whole, and. It's not easy. It's not an easy position. Uh, you know, yeah. James, I think, did a good job. Uh, it's, you know, it's not fun. Nobody looks forward to the inevitable, you know, people coming, hey, where's this guy gone? Oh, my God, it's censorship. Oh, my God, this is, uh, right? I mean, it's just yeah. bad. It's silly oh, noise that comes out of immature <laughs> put, people. Putting in uh, some rules into a community of uh, rabid uh, anarchists is like putting your foot into a pool of piranhas, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so, so but people... What happens is, so a, a standard is put up where we say, okay, so there's no formal rule that says you can't post, blah, blah, blah. And people try and trap you with rules. And they say, well, there's no rule. He didn't break a rule. Well, but there is a rule called the good of the community, which is something that has to be weighed and balanced. And, of course, there's lots of people who disagree with me, lots of people who disagree with others uh, uh, on the board. I think that's fine. It's, you know, good debate and so on. But, you know, when you've got, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 complaints in a month about a poster, 
you know, you I think you have to try and do something about it for you know the enjoyment of everyone as a whole. Yeah. You know, is is it easy? No, it's not easy. But but people will will try and say, well, you have to be a slave to to rules. But of course, this isn't that's true when it comes to to good and evil. But that's not true when it comes to APA, right? Aesthetically preferable action is not is not something that is rules based, right? I mean, if someone, yeah. if you say I'm going to meet someone at seven and they arrive at seven minutes and one, sorry, at seven o'clock and one minute, you know, do you get to scream at them for being late? No. Are they late? Yes. Is it two minutes, three minutes? Is it three and a half minutes? Is it 15 minutes? Is it half an hour, but they had a car crash? Are you still going to scream at them for being late, right? These kinds of, yeah. whereas if somebody just goes and, uh, I don't know, stabs your cat, then obviously that's bad, right? But uh, <laughs> people want to try and move these aesthetically preferable things into the realm of, you know, really good and bad and, and so on. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's hard for people when a rule is imposed or a decision is made uh, because so often people have had rules, they've been be beaten down with rules or they've had these contradictory rules. So the first thing, when, when, when people experience a rule or a ban on a message board, it's just one example, it could be anything. When people experience this, what they experience is someone in authority abusing uh, through, through power uh, and maybe claiming rules afterwards. And so the first thing that they want to do is to find an exception to that rule or to find a way to disarm the person imposing the rules by getting them to self-attack morally. It's not bad behavior per yeah. se. It definitely is immature because it doesn't have anything to do with James or me or the message board. It's all to do with family stuff, with priest stuff, with teacher stuff. It's all bomb in the brain stuff. It's nothing to do with it. I mean, a message board is not that important in people's lives that they've got to obsessively post about one guy who's asked to stop posting for a month. I mean, that's not... Anybody with any perspective realizes that, that is not a big fucking issue <laughs> in people's lives. It's all bomb in the brain stuff. What happens is you activate people's desire to evade rules either by overcomplication, by counterattack, by, oh, a rule has been imposed and all rules are bad because they were used to attack me when I was a kid and so I've got to find some way to turn the tables. It's creating massive amounts of anxiety in me and massive amounts of hostility and fear. And, and so, but they don't process that. They don't take the responsibility to say, well, why is this upsetting me so much? What is this like in my past that I really need to deal with? But they just, you know, in an immature way, they just go act out on the board, right? I mean, these kinds of shit disturbers, they can actually be kind of useful in a way too, right? I mean, uh, I posted something about uh, my interview with uh, Stefan Kinsella, or conversation really, about the Stop Online Piracy Act. <laughs> so a guy uh, was posting on the um, the YouTube channel uh, on that video, and he was saying, oh, okay, so some guy steps up, sets up you know, a, a Steph website where he mirrors every single thing that you've done, and everyone donates to him, and you make no money at all, and wouldn't that bother you? Wouldn't you just, are you telling me that wouldn't bother you at all? I mean... <laughs> That's the kind of shit disturbing question that's just supposed to fan yeah. the flames of you. Yeah, that would bother me. That thieving bastard, give me that website. I'm going to go to his house with a shovel, right? You know, yeah. it's just supposed to get you yeah. riled up. Yeah. But the reality is that nobody's going to do that. I mean, nobody's going to sit up and mirror my whole website. What would the point of that be? And, uh, of course, anybody who listens to what I'm talking about and thinks it's worth something, then will come and donate to me, not to this other guy who they will clearly recognize somebody just piggybacking. So, um, anyway, but they'll just try and stoke you with resentment um, by by pretending there's this big moral uh, issue, but my God, wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world, you know, that was one of the biggest threads over the last month. Wouldn't it be great if we lived in a world where asking a confusing and alienating overposter to take a short break from a message board was the biggest moral issue <laughs> in people's lives? Oh God, I dream of that world. And of course, it's not. I mean, it's completely unimportant relative to the other stuff. But they're doing this rather than dealing with the, whatever other stuff is is stoking them.
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, uh, well, I, I, I take an interest uh, in, um, you know, uh, all the UFO debates. And I know this is totally sidelined for uh, FDR, but uh, the main interest actually over there is just to look at uh, a sort of field or a forum of debate and contention. And believe me, that's highly, you know, disputed, just everything from fact A to theory B. And it's interesting just to see the same kind of lineup in a way you have people who are, uh, to me, admirable reasoners with a really, and they're really doing a good job to try and make sense of what is sometimes just chaotic information and uh, various trolling and flaming and, of course, government disinformation and accusations and suspicions, conspiracy theories, everything else, and they're trying to make sense of it. And it's it's interesting to see there are some parallels there, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, I, I always look for, you know, a reasonably mature and and positive um, curiosity, right? So if somebody wants to correct me on something, they say, yeah, okay, you're a smart guy. You obviously thought this through. Uh, I, I think that, you know, maybe you missed something. What about this? Or, you know, oh, well, that was a tough situation. I'm not sure exactly how I would have handled it, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, people just polarize and say, well, I like this other guy's post. It's like, well, then you can email him. You can, you know, you know, you can, you can have a conversation. No one's stopping anybody from you know, from having conversations with whoever they want. And, but people, they don't, uh, there's just no empathy, right? And there's no empathy. And, um, of course, the first thing they accuse others, people with no empathy, the first thing they accuse others of, of, of lacking is empathy. That's, I mean, that's, that's almost inevitable. It's so, it's like watching, you know, those, um, there's those videos on YouTube with guys who have way too much time on their hands setting up like six million dominoes all falling in a row up and down stairs and round and round and all this kind of stuff. And, um, it's just it's just inevitable, right? I mean, you, you see this stuff come down and you see it just knock knock knocking over because there's no thought, no self reflection, no self knowledge. Yeah. And I mean just rank hypocrisy, frankly. I mean, people, you know, condemning mods for being condemning. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's like yelling at someone to stop yelling. I mean it's uh it's you know, without any sense that this is so self contradictory. Anyway, it is it is a challenge. But on the on the other hand I will say that uh, I don't have a lot of experience with message boards, but yeah, I think it's very civilized for the most part. I mean, I think there's apologies. I think there's curiosity. I think there's, you know, help me to understand rather than you're just an idiot and you're wrong. And there's a minority of people, right? Um, you know, <laughs> it's always, I mean, it's so predictable, right? There's always one guy uh, who's, uh, who jumps in, uh, who's never had a post before, but he jumps in right in the middle of a contentious post and starts stoking up more flames. And it's just like, oh, come on. <laughs> he's never been interested in FDR at all. Oh, but now he's like, it's just a joke account, right? But it is... Um, yeah. I think it's very civilized. I think it's uh, I think it's very a very positive sense of interactions. And you know, yeah. you do have to deal with difficult and uh, aggressive people in your life. So it's not a bad thing to. Um, I mean, you do perhaps. I don't know. Maybe you don't. But uh, it's not yeah. a bad thing to to see and get used to. But uh, you know, it's just that you know, if people don't approach approach you with respect and curiosity. Just don't engage. Don't you know. It's the old thing, you know, uh, you can go down and mud wrestle with the pig, but all that happens is you get muddy and the pig likes it. You know, I just, I don't respond to people unless they're even, you know, they don't have to agree with me at all. And they, they can even yeah. be very challenging, but they do at least have to treat me with some dignity and respect. Uh, I mean, that's the way I try to extend my interactions with people. So, yeah, if they don't, um, I mean, there is this big invitation to come down and, you know, have a shit flinging fest down in the monkey cage, but I'm just not going there.
Yeah, no, if if the other person is uh, really interested in debate, you can maintain a very civil tone, even though they're taking an opposite position from you. Those are productive debates sometimes. But when the tone is all inflammatory and, uh, you know, it's just one insult after another, uh, it isn't worth it. It's true. Right. Yeah. Uh, did you have another question? I had a, uh, a, a somewhat unrelated comment. Uh, no, no. I uh, I always like talking with you, and uh, I don't always get a chance. Uh, so around Christmas time, I do. So <laughs> I just thought I'd call in and just say hi. Anyway, well, I'll let you go. Merry on. Christmas! Uh, it's nice yeah. to hear from you again. Okay. Okay. Uh, c a couple of corrections uh, of uh, things that I have gotten wrong uh, in uh, in recent videos. Uh, turns out I'm not bald. Uh, it was just a trick of the light. Uh, but uh, first of all, I said that. Um, the Great Wall of China was visible from space. And people have told me that that's uh, not true. And now, of course, I meant visible from space with a telescope pointing at the Great Wall of China, but uh, apparently it's not true. It's an urban myth. It's a legend. Uh, so um, disregard that. Uh, I, I think in the last weekend's show, I talked about, in terms of evolution, that there were these light moths and dark moths and polluted trees with darkened tree trunks and so on. I uh, found out that <laughs> that was a completely cooked up uh, and 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 false quote support for uh, the evolutionary position that these moths were actually nocturnal, so it didn't really matter that there was different um, colored trunk tree trunks during the daytime, and that the pictures that showed up in my biology textbook when I was a kid, and I think are still around to some degree, the pictures were actually fakes. They actually st stapled these moths to the trees to make it look like there was some evolutionary principle at work. Turned out to be just another piltdown thing. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, I, I sometimes feel like everything, uh, I have to double check everything, like even stuff which was in my biology textbooks when I was young. I have to double check it because it could turn, have turned out to be uh, to be false. So uh, thank you to those uh, who corrected me on that. And there were quite a few of you. I appreciate that. And uh, I will certainly strive to do my best. I can't double check everything. I am one guy. Uh, and, uh, of course, I do need time to pick my nose and scratch myself. So, well, that's about 20 hours a day. There's not much left outside of that. But I will try and get more fact-checking in as we move forward. Yes, my forehead is visible from space. I think that's what, <laughs> even if I'm underground, strangely enough, it's uh, that's the incandescence thought that's going on here, my friends. All right. Do we have? Uh, I don't want to drag on people's Christmas experience if we have a paucity of viewers because everybody's too busy stuffing their talking hole with tofurkey. But um, if we have another caller or another question in the chat room, I would be happy. Otherwise, let's close her down. I'll get back to putting my head in a cheesecake. I just um, wanted to extend my appreciation for the reminder of uh, the criticism. You know, the, the criticism uh, metric, I guess you could say, you know, whether to pay attention to criticism or not. Um, yes, no, and I, 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 could, I could see you getting worn down there like, like a sandcastle in front of a tsunami. And like, I understand it. I really do. Uh, you made a decision that, um, you know, uh, was in the best interest of the community. And yeah, I think, got, I think we got some good criticism about other ways to handle it, uh, which I thought was fine. But um Oh, yeah. I mean, people, uh, they just, they're, they're power seekers, right? Oh, if I can get this person to self-attack, then my sadistic impulses will be satisfied. And uh, I would strongly suggest not giving them that satisfaction. Don't ever feed that. 
as best yeah. you can. Yeah. Now, and and uh, for what it's worth, it also kind of, not just kind of, um, a recent conflict I had with, uh, you know, in sort of a friendship sphere, um, really related to that too. You know, it just sort of tripped me up the the unjust criticisms. Um, yeah. Look, I mean, self attack is like blood in the water. It draws people. You know, it it draws sharks into the neighborhood. Uh, and uh, if you, you know, self-criticism is great. You know, self-examination is great. Uh, Self-attack is just like a big bugle horn call, calling all the crazy wolves in the vicinity to come and feast on your entrails. So uh, with an extreme metaphor like that, I hope you can relax. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, we've definitely talked about this. Uh, we, we we had this whole role play. You know, I think it's three years ago now um, yeah. where a little over three years, October Oh wait, right? Where it was, you got to meet my critic. So, yeah, yeah no, and look, we all we all have that guy, and we yeah. all have that yeah. uh, colossal brain-spanning asshole in the head who uh, lacerates us sometimes for errors that we've made. Uh, I mean, the way that I would suggest uh, also is um, is it's the it's the perspectometer that I think is is really important. Um, it's the perspectometer of the criticism relative to the stimulus is really, really important, right? So you asked uh, a poster that many dozens of people had complained about being disruptive um, and whose threads did not seem to be to achieving a lot of illumination. You know, again, it's everybody's choice for themselves. But, you you know, you ask that guy to take a break from posting. I mean, the, the, in terms of moral issues within the universe, this is entirely in the spectrum of voluntarism. Uh, it is certainly not abusive to set up boundaries for that kind of stuff. And... Um, uh, I personally think it was it was healthy for him. Uh, I, I don't think that that level of um, focus on the message board is is good for someone. I, I think you know you kind of have to you know you have to kind of take the uh, uh, the chocolate cake out of the diabetics uh, off the diabetics fork once in a while. Uh, so I you know but you know not a huge moral issue. You know it's not like uh, you're confessing to having uh, you know strangled a sack full of kittens or something. And so uh, I sort of look at, at that issue and say, okay, well, this was the stimulus. Uh, what is the response? And if the response is vastly, and the, the intensity and the, it's vastly out of proportion with the stimulus, then I just know it has nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me and, and nothing to do with you. you. You made a decision. I think it was a reasonable decision. Could have been fine-tuned maybe, but that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting that kind of feedback. But, uh, you know, I mean, the level of, <laughs> I mean, just the malevolence of the hostility, it's, it's got nothing to do with you. I mean, this is all just people who are dumping their shit on you because they don't want to deal with it themselves. And, you know, relative to the stimulus, you know, it's just like, you know, holy crap, you know, like if people don't recognize just how nutty a response that is to asking somebody who's been posting five to six messages a day for 10 months, long messages and posts and responses, um, you know, let's save our outrage for say, 100,000 Iraqi civilians murdered. Let's save our outrage for hundreds of thousands of Americans unjustly imprisoned uh, because of uh, non-crimes. Uh, let's save our outrage for the you know, fiat currency debt being handed down to future generations. Let's save our outrage for the big important issues uh, because if, you, if people spend that much amount of rage on a completely inconsequential little message board decision somewhere out there on the internet, then that is, I mean, it's mental. It's completely mental. And uh, it shows such a lack of proportion that it's just all bomb in the brain stuff. I just wanted to sort of mention that. 
I mean, people, I mean, they probably don't know just how, how ridiculous it looks because maybe they've got people who are like, oh, yeah, oh, it's a hypocritical community and they call itself Free Domain Radio and then they, uh, it's like, wow. I mean, if people don't understand the degree to which they're spending a pathetic, ridiculous and embarrassing amount of moral outrage on an inconsequential little board decision that inconvenienced someone for maybe a month, I mean, if they don't see how crazy that looks, then they really need to do some self-work. But if you engage with it, you give it a kind of reality that obscures how nutty it is, right? Uh, that's true. And it's, uh, you know, it's always sort of thought, you know, like, I don't know, if I was single and some, some woman... Uh, didn't want to go out with me or went out with me on a date and then didn't want to go out with me again. And then I just sort of spam board, spammed her message board where she was with, you know, nasty things about her. Be like, oh, I think I get why she didn't want to, you're not exactly helping your case here. I think I get why she didn't want to go out with you, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just the noise that wounded souls limping around unaware of their own brokenness make when they see a standard. And of course, part of it is this aversion therapy, right? It's, it's, to, it's to, um, to make the cost of having standards so high that we resist wanting to have standards, right? Oh, the cost to benefit so high. But that cost is, is optional to us, right? And if you just ignore that noise, then the cost is, you know, whatever, right? Um, but uh, it's a way of trying to get um, moderators to to not have you know reasonable standards for for the message board and I mean it is it is so rare what is it is so rare that anything like this comes up that you know people who find this to be some big monstrous moral crime I mean it's I mean it's just ridiculous it's it's so so foolish and so obvious right yeah yeah. I mean, if I go back to uh, not doing it like months earlier, um, really the reason I didn't earlier <laughs> I didn't want to deal with this crap, you know, I don't want to deal with all the hooting and hollering and stuff. That well, but you don't have place. to, right? I mean, just yeah. don't get updates from the thread and ignore it. Yeah. I mean, switch off. <laughs> you know, that's that's perfectly fine. Right. All right. Do we have any other comments or questions or issues? Oh, somebody can somebody dig up. Was it the in Odessa uh, in February? I think it's February the 11th. I'll be doing the master ceremonies work and some speaking work for the Texas meetup. If somebody could drop that into the into the chat room, I will read that off. I hope you can come out and see that. Uh, I really like the emceeing work at uh, Libertopia. It was a lot of work, but uh, it was a lot of fun. And um, got to meet some, of course, some really great people. So uh, if somebody can throw that up, I will read it off. But I hope you'll be able to come by. I don't know. People have asked me. I don't know if they charge or not. I assume that will be something. I don't know if they donate. Uh, it's based, donation-based or not.
I am coming to Texas, baby. I'm just waiting for the... Uh... Oh, somebody said you were awesome at Libertopia. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good lineup of speakers, um, so I hope that you'll be uh, able to make it down. And yeah, they're gonna get, they've got a lot of uh, production quality stuff down there, so it will definitely be recorded. I don't know if it's going to be streamed or not, but it will definitely be recorded. Right, so I will be hosting Liberty Fest West in Texas, February the 11th, 2012. Uh, it's a one-day event. We're gonna, I'm trying to sort of, I'm talking with the organizers to try and get also a sort of breakfast um, meeting as well, because I'll probably be staying there overnight. I will be staying there overnight. So we'll try and get a breakfast meeting in there as well. Uh, it's um, libertyfestwest.com, and I hope that you will be able to come by. Uh, I'll be coming in a little bit earlier, so if anybody wants to meet sort of for... I guess an early dinner uh, or maybe even a late lunch. Uh, I would be very happy to sit down and chat with whoever's around. Uh, always a pleasure to meet the delicious cream-filled listeners. So, um, yeah, libertyfestwest.com. All right, last call for alcohol. Last call for callers. We've answered everything. Wow, I guess we sign off at 2540 or whatever it is. No, no, barge in. There's, no, <laughs> there's, a, there's a vacuum of callers. You're not barging. Excuse me, uh, somebody Hello. asked me to barge in. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Excuse me, somebody asked me to barge in. Yes, please go ahead. <laughs> oh, my God, has it been a week already? No wonder I have to pee. <laughs> no. Wait, wait. I wanted to get uh, I wanted to get your input on uh, on uh, I, I hear that you haven't read Human Action, but I wanted to get your input on Austrian economics. What? From the extent that you know about it, well, what can you tell us about it? What can I say about Austrian economics? Yeah. Uh, well, um, it's uh, it's for um, economists who don't like math. That's my uh, <laughs> that's my understanding of it. Well, I mean, it's it's praxeologically based, and it is also based upon intrinsic value rather than uh, absolute value. So, praxeologically based, insofar as um, it has self-contained certainties that, so for instance, all other things being equal, an increase in the money supply will result in an inflation of prices or in any exchange that which is voluntary is by definition really uh, considered to be of benefit to both participants. And their benefit is obviously unequal uh, in terms of they want what the other person has more than what they have. Uh, so it's unequal, but it is to to each person's benefit. And that is simply, that's, I mean, that's what praxeology means, to my knowledge and understanding, is that it's simply innate within the transaction. If it's voluntary, it must be preferred, because the person is choosing to have that exchange over every other conceivable exchange or no exchange. 
that could be occurring. And so, yeah, it's empirical, it's uh, praxeological, uh, and it says that there's no, there's no objective value. It says that gold has value. Well, no, gold has value to people who want it to have value. Even a glass of water to a thirsty man uh, has value only to him, and he may choose not to have it if he's, um, uh, if he's going through some sort of fast, or if he's going, if, if it's Ramadan, for instance, uh, he may be really hungry, or as my driver in Morocco said many years ago, ah, you know, when you, uh, you are in Ramadan, then you are... Uh, you are again, no water in the day. By the end of the day, the water looks like a beautiful, curvaceous woman. I don't know what accent that is. It's generic foreign, and I apologize to anyone who knows anything about a Moroccan accent. That was not even close. But, um, uh, but the sentiment was definitely, was definitely there. Uh, so, I mean, as a result of, of all of this stuff, um, since you can only tell the value of an economic interaction if there's no violence, uh, coercion, or compulsion involved, then... Uh, you have to oppose government intervention in the free market and be pro-free market. It is essentially founded upon property rights and the non-aggression principle. And because of that, it is anarchic in its essence. Uh, and the degree to which it deviates from uh, its anarchism, you know, Friedman and, and of course, Ayn Rand, who wasn't an Austrian, but uh, um, was not far off uh, in that. The Roth I mean, Rothbard, of course, was a pure anarcho-capitalist, but... Um, uh, since uh, it says that the value of an economic interaction can only be determined or its um, value to both parties can only really exist in the absence of coercion, it is fundamentally non-aggression principle and property rights. And it's got great critiques of socialism, uh, the calculation problem, uh, all of which, you know, gosh, I don't know the degree to which it's had any effect in the world, but they've had great critiques of central planning. Uh, obviously, they were one of the first groups and one of the most powerful groups to oppose uh, uh, communism, uh, and it is uh, to me a, a massive star of honor on the chest of the Austrian school and Mises in particular, because um, those of us who are more schooled in classical liberalism, it's easy to forget the degree to which intellectuals worshipped the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, and I'm not just talking about intellectuals, I guess, like Shirley MacLaine, who also worshipped China uh, in throes of communist starvation, but. Um, I mean, there were pilgrimages that were sent over. A, a, a reporter, I can't remember his name, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on Russia when he was sent to all these Potemkin villages in the 1930s where, you know, fat, happy workers were being well-fed while, of course, you know, two miles from the village, everybody was lying in a ditch eating their own nipples from hunger. And um, the amount of slavish worship of uh, collectivism, of, of socialism, of communism throughout the 20th century was staggering and was by far the majority of intellectual life, uh, from the Fabian socialists onwards, from the, the Marxists to the Leninists, Marxists, Leninists, the Troxiists, the Fabian socialists onwards, the, I mean, there was even massive worship for, for Mussolini. I mean, people forget the degree to which he was just praised and revered, uh, uh, the fascists, even Hitler was, you know, had his fans, uh, particularly in the British aristocracy in the late 20s and early 30s. Um, so the degree to which the Austrians were skeptical of and hostile towards an rightly analytically critically, uh, critical of, uh, of communism and socialism is to their absolutely enormous and undying credit. It's not a credit that's often given because everybody wants to sweep under the rug the degree to which uh, communism drew its lifeblood from Western intellectuals. But uh, I think it's an incredibly noble uh, historical tradition from that standpoint. And uh, Mises uh, did work uh, in the government and worked to help control inflation and you know did some real uh, and genuine, though unfortunately not long-lasting good in that area. His biography is well worth reading from that standpoint. 
And uh, so, yeah, I mean, a man to be to be admired, you know, standing up against that level of unanimity on the socialist communist side took some real cojones. And, uh, you know, he had some big, heavy clanging sets. I would have to agree with that. And um, in a further point of agreement, when I was in Germany, I spent three months of my life in Germany uh, for as an exchange student, right? And at some point in a conversation with my uh, host family there, they were older people, about 60-something years years old, about. And um, they we just struck up this conversation about Hitler. And at some point I said something like, oh, Hitler is, you know, he's really bad. And uh, the, the, my host father said, hmm, you know, uh, there's a lot of bad things that are said about Hitler. But at the same time, you know, he really rebuilt the uh, German economy. And, uh, for example, he provided work by making, by letting people uh, build the highways and stuff like that. And I couldn't believe my ears when I was hearing this. I was like, hmm, are you really apologizing? I mean, I'm not sure if you're apologizing for the Holocaust by saying that Hitler rebuilt the economy. So I was kind of taken aback and I didn't know how to respond. But then again, I was like 16 years old. <laughs> well, sorry to interrupt, but uh, I mean, I assume that this guy would have been old enough to have experienced directly what happened in Germany um, in the post-World War One period in the Weimar catastrophe, you know, Probably. which is currently being played out in the West almost everywhere, right, which is the, um, uh, the, the fiscal disasters, the, the, the paralysis of democracy, the massive bribery on unfunded liabilities into the future. Uh, and, and this, you know, so Germany was facing a genuine catastrophe. Uh, you know, the hyperinflation completely destroyed the middle class. And if you destroy the middle class, you get nothing but radicals. I mean, nothing but radicals take over. Uh, and this, of course, is why the decline of the middle class in America and other Western countries is so, uh, so dangerous. Uh, you, you, you hollow out the, the middle of society and it, it collapses uh, and it really collapses into freedom. And so uh, to a lot of people, um, you know, Hitler got in and, uh, you know, he, he massive public works. He stopped uh, the, the uh, payments uh, under the Versailles Treaty, he kept the gold in, in Germany, which was used, of course, as the foundation for some economic recovery. He loosened some economic laws. Uh, he um, fought, fought back the trade unions, which were heavily communistic at this point. Uh, and um, there were big public works projects. Uh, and, of course, but most fundamentally, he, he reformed the currency. I mean, he, right? I mean, his economic advisors obviously reformed the currency. Um, yes. He imposed a dictatorship uh, relatively quickly and very brutally. But remember, a, a dictatorship for a lot of people is not particularly important if you're not on the radar of the dictator. And uh, so they, they, you know, for the average German in, in sort of the early to mid-1930s, there was some improvement in, in the economic life. And there was some... Now, of course, you look down the road and the dictatorship leads to war, as it always does, because the socialist policies of the dictatorships can't be sustained and so you always end up uh, in in wars but um from that perspective you can say okay well there was some improvement for a lot of germans uh, uh under the initial nazi regime uh, but uh, of course uh, you know it just was a headlong plunge into pure evil yep um i have a recommendation to make to your listeners and uh, in case of in case they want to learn more about uh, praxeology there's a TV channel, well, it's not a TV channel, it's a, a webpage with a YouTube channel called Praxeology.tv, where quick, uh, 
lessons of praxeology in form of like three or four minute pills are actually available. I think you'll find it interesting. I have more, one more question for you though. Yeah, so I would also recommend Prax Girl. Yeah, that's, that's basically Praxeology TV is Prax Girl, yeah. Oh, same thing, okay, sorry. So uh, have you, I mean, I'm gonna express my appreciation and admiration for this man called Hans Hermann Hoppe. I'm sure right. you've heard of him. Oh, yes. Uh, are you familiar with his argumentation ethics? He kind of derives self-ownership and property rights in a very, very interesting manner, which is quite similar to the way you do it, but he starts strictly from empirical observation and, uh, well, he does set, a, set forth a value. He says, you know, the idea of these moral norms uh, is to reduce conflict and in fact, if we assume that's what moral rules are for, everything he says sounds completely unassailable. Have you ever watched his video on YouTube, uh, one of his videos on YouTube? I have not. I actually, I ordered the Hans Hoppy collection from Mises.org, and I plowed about halfway through Democracy, the God That Failed, and he's got one book on praxeology, which I've started. Uh, I have not started his works on argumentation ethics. Uh, I'm I'm certainly keen to, but it's the kind of thing that you. I mean, for me, I really need concentrated time to to work on that. And at, at the moment, uh, I feel I'm sort of in terms of my prioritization. I feel that 2012 is going to be an absolutely crucial year in, in the history of the world. I, I mean, I really, really believe that that I mean the shit's going to hit the wall as far as statism goes, and we really need to be out there, front and center, full flares, full throttle, you know, screaming to the wind, and whoever will listen how it is violence that has failed and not peace and voluntarism. And certainly I would be fascinated, but to me it would be a little bit self-indulgent right now. What I need to do is, is work on this documentary that I've started scripting and I've got a number of people involved in to, to work on. Uh, and, you know, again, if you want to donate to that, that would be really helpful because it's going to be an expensive thing. But, I, you know, um, Freedom Needs its Zeitgeist movie. And, you know, I have humbly <laughs> nominated myself as somebody who might be able to produce something that might get as widespread as that. So... Um, and, and if anybody has, you know, wants to get involved and wants to help, uh, this is not a solo project. It's a big deal. And, um, uh, you know, I've got musicians, I've got uh, producers, I've got really starting to work, uh, the, the connections to get the stuff underway. Uh, I, I really feel that this is a very, very crucial time to get a message that's, that's bigger than anything I've been able to do before. Uh, and, you know, I, obviously if you're interested in reviewing the script, the script is pretty crucial. And uh, that's that's my focus at the moment. So, you know, I think Hoppe is a very interesting and, a, you know, I mean, a very serious scholar and a very well-researched writer and a good writer in many ways. And he's certainly a very creative thinker. Uh, but um, I don't think for the next little while, at least, I'll be able to get much of a chance to dig into uh, his uh, argumentation ethics. Well, I can send you a link to a video that lasts about 15 minutes. If you have 50 minutes of your time in, to, in 2012, I highly recommend that you look at it. I appreciate that. Uh, maybe you can post that in the chat window too. And, and on the message I'll board. post it. Yes, I will uh, post it in the chat window. I'll post it as a forum post probably. You keep uh, tabs on people's postings of the forums, right? Obsessively. No, yes, I Uh, somebody's asked, is the disbelief in God necessary to work towards UPB and a stateless society? 
That's a great question. I would argue, of course, that the, accepting the non-existence of, of deities is a mere subset of accepting the non-existence of things which do not exist, right? I mean, fairies, ghosts, goblins, Santa Claus cruising through Google Earth and so on. So it is uh, accepting, we have, I mean, we have to accept that which does not exist, does not exist. Uh, that is, um, I think, fundamental to having a free society. I mean, the, the only freedom fundamentally is freedom from illusion. Uh, if you are free from illusions, freedom will follow in all controllable areas of your life, inevitably. Not saying fun freedom, but freedom uh, from, from uh, illusion. It's freedom from corruption. It's freedom from self-attack. Uh, it is freedom from um, rage. It's freedom from discontent. Uh, and in the long run, it's freedom from fear. So freedom from illusion is, is freedom from control. It's, it's unhooking all of the Gepetto strings that people hook into you to, to control you by getting you to live in a world of words rather than a world of things that exist and things that are real. So can you say, obviously there are people who can reject the state and accept God. I mean, that, that certainly is, is the case. And um, I'm not sure what discernible, uh, what discernible or empirical harm has come from that. I would need to sort of think about that some more. But I will say that it is important for, if I'm right, and it's a multi-generational process, and it's very important to not teach your children things that are false as if they are true. And again, I wait with bated breath for my daughter to start talking about gods and devils and saints and Jesus and Muhammad and so on. Um... I think that the moments that you have to tell your child that something is true when it's not true, then you are, in a sense, demanding that that child subject their independent reason to your authority. And the surrender of integrity to authority is the essence of hierarchy. And so the moment that you ask the child to abandon critical thinking for the sake of your authority, you have set up the groundwork for a pyramid-shaped hierarchy in society, a state. And... So I think that is, it's not so necessary to reject God to achieve a stateless society, but it is important to teach your children not to surrender their integrity to authority, not to surrender their critical thinking to a hierarchy, whether that hierarchy is religious or educational or um, familial or statist. You have to retain your direct relationship with an appreciation of an understanding of reality and your own independent critical thought in relation to reality. If you surrender that in any area, then you have weakened, I think, critically the capacity to move forward as a whole. And so I think that, you know, there's no substitute for first principles, and first principles mows down many a tall oak and tiny dandelion. Uh, it's just the way things have to go. Children have to grow up recognizing that the sovereignty of their own intellect and their own integrity, their own understanding, their own reason, their own processing of reality is paramount and inviolable and I cannot violate that with my children and I would certainly ask that religious people not uh, teach their children that religion is true. They can teach them about religion because religion is certainly something that exists in the world but you cannot I think justly teach your child that religion is true without asking them to surrender their sovereign independent reason to your authority and I think that is harmful.
Yeah, sorry. Yeah, my daughter doesn't know Santa Claus because, you know, we go to the mall and there's a a guy in a fat suit and a, a beard with whiskey breath. So, yeah, she knows. But, I mean, she knows that lots of people dress up, right? She's seen clowns. Uh, when we were at uh, Libertopia, not last year, but the year before, there was a guy in a turtle suit uh, that she'd like to hold hands and walk around with. So, yeah, she knows about lots of uh, mythical creatures, but she knows that they're mythical, right? All right. Well, I actually am, <laughs> I hate to sound so base and materialistic, although, you know, okay, one last thing, one last thing I haven't mentioned. <laughs> I haven't mentioned this. It's too funny. I don't know if anyone can find this picture. It was on the Huffington Post this morning. I won't say where I was when I was checking it, but um, the Pope has come out against the materialism of Christmas. Thank heaven. The Pope has come out against the materialism of Christmas, and he says, do not be distracted by the shiny baubles of Christmas. And he says this, of course, while wearing a giant embossed tea cozy and what looks like a spaceship of diamonds coming up from his head in a big white plume. Do not be distracted by the shiny baubles of Christmas, apparently only of Christianity and of the Pope. But for the Pope to rail against the materialism of religion while sitting on a $35 billion fortune, largely extracted from selling imaginary cures to imaginary illnesses, i.e. salvation from sin, to complain about materialism and shiny baubles while looking like you're standing around in a jazzed-up Liberace costume from Alice in Wonderland is, to me, truly astounding. And when you're standing on a city made of gold, torn out of the credulous hides, of people propagandized from birth it truly is an astounding statement. And the fact that people can both say this and hear this and not fall down laughing is truly astounding. I mean, it just shows, shows you how far we have to go as a society. The Pope, this is like Barack Obama railing against political power. I mean, it, it's truly like me railing against the power of the internet. It's just madness. But this is where we are as a society. It's, it's, it's deeply shocking that it's not shocking to people to hear this kind of nonsense. Anyway, I just want to sort of mention that. Oh yeah, look beyond the holidays, superficial glitter. Superficial glitter. I mean, when you're in a costume that Liberace would say, oh my God, that's just way too much. You might want to have a rethink about your opposition to superficial glitter. That's one of those things that could get you started on a laughing jag. <laughs> Can't stop laughing. Oh, yeah, I really was. Uh, this morning, I was like, oh, my God, can this be serious? I mean, can he seriously? I mean, at least at least tone down the, you know, gay parade disco headgear uh, a little bit when you're talking, talking about shiny, empty materialism. Just, you know, that would be, I mean, it's, it's bad comedy. Uh, that's, that's, the, <laughs> that's the shocking thing about this, this stuff. Uh, will you be having a uh, show next week, the first? Well, yeah. I mean, did, did people like this show today? I know we had a, a bit of a dearth of callers. I guess we had some. Uh, I mean, there are, what, how many people we got? What, 60 people in the chat room? Uh, yeah, I don't that's, know how many on the stream. That's not too I mean, far. That's not too far off what we normally have. Um, yeah, I think, look, I mean, I, yeah. I love chatting. I love chatting to listeners. If people want to chat with me, I am 
you know, forever uh, and a day open to to listening. Um, I love you guys all. I love you guys all so much uh, that, um, you know, I have to be restrained from jumping at the mic at every opportunity. So if people want to talk to me, uh, I will with great joy and bells on make myself available. All right. Well, make sure we post that a little earlier so that people know. But uh, I think, uh, you know, because it's a, you know, sort of a semi-holiday. But uh, yeah, that's cool. All right. Okay, well, listen, everybody, have yourself a completely stupendously wonderful week. Uh, I hope that you bring out your combat ninja chucks, nunchucks for Boxing Day, if such is to be your intention. And uh, if you can, pry a few uh, bottles of frankincense and myrrh uh, to send to Free Domain Radio's way for the end of the year. Before the end of the year, that would be fantastic. Uh, Christmas, of course, is a, uh, a challenging month for any donation-based uh, institution that's not got a cross on top. So... Uh, if you have any uh, a, a loose change rolling around the couch, if you could uh, fire it through Carrier Pigeon to freedomainradio.com forward slash donate, I would really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for joining uh, us uh, on this Christmas Day 2011. Uh, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week. Thank you again a million times for all of your support and encouragement in this conversation. Thank you to all of the parents who are writing to me saying that they have cast away the rod to spare the child and you're no longer hitting, raising the voices, yelling, reasoning. Thank you for everybody who's telling me how well that's working, how beautifully the children are responding. Just remember to apologize for the wrongs that you've done. If you change course, uh, I hope that you will. And I will talk to you soon. <laughs>